know what the game plan is tonight. As I promised this morning, I do have a very brief message for us tonight. We're going to be looking at uh, those mysterious characters, the, the magi, the kings, the wise men from the second chapter of Matthew, and then we'll be moving into the commissioning service a little bit later. In Matthew chapter 2, he introduces us to a very fascinating part of the story of the birth of Jesus by telling us of those mysterious travelers coming to worship Jesus. Tradition says that there were three men because they gave three different gifts, but the fact is we really don't know. There could have been four, six, could have been 12, could have been a large number. We just don't know. Assuming that they were men of wealth, they would have most likely traveled in a large caravan creating quite a sensation when they arrived in Jerusalem. They would have been men of dignity and distinction. They came from the east. They were non-Jews by birth. In biblical language, the east, as it's often referred to, was that region beyond the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. But we don't know from how far east of there that they actually came. It's widely accepted that they came from the area of ancient Persia. Today, that would be the countries of Iran and Afghanistan. The word for wise men is magi. They were active in Babylon in Old Testament history. The book of Daniel tells of their influence. They were considered sages or the scholars of their time. They were powerful since no man could become a king unless he first mastered the scientific and religious disciplines of the Magi. Their expertise resulted in that code of law referred to in the books of Daniel and in Esther in the Old Testament as the law of Medes and the Persians. Our word magistrate comes from the word Magi. We know that Daniel was appointed chief of the, of the Magi in Babylon, because of his wisdom, because of his influence and knowledge that came from God. So, arriving in Jerusalem, the Magi say that they had been led by a star. What was it? Astronomers have suggested that it may have been a comet. It may have been some kind of planetary movement, perhaps a supernova. Astronomers try to prove that it was some sort of natural understandable phenomenon. Now, to me, that sounds like an oxymoron, an understandable phenomenon. But in other words, what they're saying is, we don't know what it was, but we're just going to try to assign it some human terms and ideas and words that we can understand. What they called, the wise men, the magi, a star appeared to them, and then it disappeared And then this same star that they called it came back again, reappeared, and led them to a specific house where Jesus was. Now, I have never heard or read of anything in astronomy doing that before. What if it was something that God created just for them? The next time you're outside, take a moment and look up and locate a star that appears to shine more brightly than others around it. And look up at that star and then ask yourself, what would it take for that star that I see just kind of flickering up there? 
what would it take for that star to lead me to a specific house several states away? I believe that it was a miraculous, supernatural happening, and I don't need scientists to explain it for me. Tonight, I want us to look at some ways that we learn from Scripture that these were wise men. They were wise enough to seek Him. First of all, they sought Jesus in spite of the difficulties of the journey. It is well thought that they may have traveled 500, perhaps as much as 1,000 miles. It would not have been an easy journey. And they had to have been convinced of what they were doing to have kept up on that journey for weeks, perhaps months. They also sought him in spite of disinterest and danger. What would you think? If you, after traveling this long on a speculative journey to arrive at the capital city and then found that no one there had any idea what you were talking about. The stop in Jerusalem was logical. After all, they were convinced that they were coming to welcome this newborn king of the Jews. They may well have assumed that this was the son of Herod. Oops, (laughs) big mistake there. Herod was not a Jew. He was Idumean. Herod was not a king. He was appointed to that position by Rome. And the danger was this. Herod was a murderer and a tyrant. And he forcefully removed anyone or anything he saw as a threat to his rule. He murdered his brother-in-law, his mother-in-law, his wife, and three sons. The emperor of Rome was reported to have said, it's better to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Safer. When he turned 70, no doubt knew that he was terminally ill. He ordered that a group of Jerusalem's most respected and distinguished citizens be arrested on false charges and imprisoned. And with that, the order that they be executed at the word of Herod's death. Now, why would he do that? He knew that no one was going to mourn his passing. And so he wanted to be sure that there would be tears of grief shed on the day he died. Now, why have I told you all of this? Because, you see, this is the man that Matthew said was troubled when he learned about the birth of Jesus. Herod called in the religious authorities. He asked them about the news that had been brought by the wise men. And their response came from Scripture itself. The ruler would be born in Bethlehem of Judea. Now let's look at some contrasts. The wise men left their homes. They traveled far at their own expense to follow a star in order to find and worship Jesus. And these religious leaders were not even interested in the least, could not even travel the five miles south to Jerusalem to look into it. As far as we know, they were not even willing to see if what these respected, wise, and influential men had said was even true. Herod tried to convince the wise men to report back to him 
when they found the one they were looking for. Of course, we know he had no intention of worshiping the new king. It was only a matter of time before he had all the boy babies under age two killed. They also sought him, the wise men, in spite of disappointments. By the time they arrived to find Jesus, Joseph Joseph and Mary had probably moved into a more permanent quarters than the stable where Jesus was born. He wasn't in the palace in Jerusalem, the capital city. He would have been found in a very common working class home in Bethlehem. He didn't look like a king. He certainly wasn't living like a king. I have to wonder if there are people today who are disappointed in Jesus. Could it be that people expect Jesus to quickly come and solve their problems and turn life into a fairy tale and make them happy and bring them great wealth in the process so that they can live happily ever after? Not only were they wise enough to seek him, but they were wise enough to worship him. At the heart of this account in Matthew is the adoration and the submission of the Magi to Jesus. Back in verse 2, when they arrived in Jerusalem, they made no secret. They said they had come to worship him. In verse 9, they finally find him. It's very interesting that verse 9 says they found the young child. The word there in the, in the Greek is paidon, which means a young child. Compare that with the word brifos, which is the word used in Luke 2 when it refers to the baby in the manger. Since Herod had had all the boy babies killed, it's very strongly suggested that Jesus was perhaps between 12 and 24 months old. At this time. And when they found him, they worshiped him. A baby. Anglican preacher of years past, J.C. Ryle, said this We read of no greater faith than this in all the Bible. It is the faith that deserves to be placed beside that of the penitent thief. The thief saw one dying the death of a criminal and yet prayed to him and called him. Lord, the wise men saw a newborn babe on the lap of a poor woman and yet worshiped him and confessed that he was the Christ. The Magi acknowledged the right of this child king to rule and reign over their lives and they bowed down and then they presented to him their gifts. The gift of gold was a common symbol of royalty. It had been associated with the worship of Jehovah for centuries in that when the high priest entered that most holy secret place in the tabernacle, everything they saw in every direction around them was gold. The gift of frankincense was in recognition of the right to be worshipped. Incense had long been used in temple worship for centuries and produced a unique smell that the people naturally associated with worship. The gift of myrrh was in recognition of the sacrifice that he would make. When mixed with wine, myrrh was used as an anesthetic. 
when Jesus was on the cross, myrrh mixed with wine was offered to him. Myrrh was also a part of that embalming process that the women brought to the tomb after Jesus was crucified. Now, whether they fully understood the significance of these gifts or not, these gifts testify to us of his royalty, of his deity, and of his death for you and me. Number three, they were wise enough to submit to him as Lord. God warned these wise men not to return to Herod, and instead they were told to return to their homeland by another route. It would have been an unfamiliar route compared to the way they had come. It would have been much more simple to just backtrack. It may have been less convenient. It may have been less comfortable. It could have been more dangerous and most likely took longer But that was the way God wanted them to go. Sometimes God calls us to do what is unfamiliar, less convenient, less comfortable. It may go against the more traveled road. It may be more costly. There may be some risks. But when we come to know him, we must submit our lives and our wills to him. I also could not help but think that it would have been nice, it would have been comfortable, it would have been relaxing, and certainly less expensive to spend the holidays in Brevard County. But Stan and Betty and Leah and I believe that God has called us to spend the next two weeks after Christmas another way. I have to think that there's a double meaning also to this part of the story. The scripture says that they were told to go home by another route. Some of the older translations say that they went home a different way. Not only did they return by a different route, but I think they were also traveling a different way now. They were different. They were changed. There was something different about them. God, through Jesus, is in the life-changing business. Some have observed three reactions to the characters in our story tonight. Herod was hostile. The scribes scribes and and the priests were indifferent. And the Magi submitted their lives to him. I would like to suggest to us tonight that there actually are only two responses. Because you see, Herod and the religious community ultimately rejected him. While the wise men accepted him. There is no middle ground. We either bring an attitude of adoration or rejection. We either exalt him or we refuse him. And the result is either salvation or condemnation. We choose eternal life or eternal death. And if I can, allow me to say it one last way to us. He is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all.
may we be wise enough to seek him. I am very happy tonight to have the members of our Mission to Kenya mission team present with us tonight. It's been uh, maybe five or six years ago now, one Sunday night after church, uh, knowing, my knowing, that uh, Dr. Stan Merle uh, had been engaged in a number of mission trips and preaching and teaching engagements around the country, around the world. That just in kind of a casual conversation, I mentioned to him as we, some of us were just talking after church one Sunday night. I said, brother, if, if there's ever an opportunity that you think I could plug into in some way, either as a speaker or just a, a support person, anything, just let me know. And he very quickly said, brother, you don't know how long I have been praying to hear you say that. And it was about five or six months later that he and Sister Betty and I went to Nepal. And that was an experience that changed my life. Stan is a founder of Redeeming Grace Ministries. Maybe you want to say a word about that when you come up a little bit later. This is Betty Lanier, Elizabeth Lanier. Is... Uh, how can I say it? Just a whirlwind of energy. She is the energy source, uh, I believe, through which God keeps our mission team going. Uh, the wife of a pastor, longtime pastor in South Florida. Um, I'll let her, if she chooses, to, to tell you how many years uh, she and her husband were in ministry and how she continues in ministry even today. When Kenya first came up, I went over to Leah's house. I don't know if I'm stealing your thunder or not, but uh, uh, I actually went over on a Saturday morning. I was going to help her cut her grass one Saturday. And uh, I, the opportunity of Kenya had just come up that week. And I think she could tell I was excited when I was telling her about going to Kenya. And I will never forget. She said, oh, Daddy, ever since you went to Nepal, I have prayed that I could go on a mission trip with you. Well, we're going. You will need to make sure that you have uh, an order uh, for the commissioning service tonight. There are a couple of places where we are going to be asking you uh, to respond. So uh, just make sure if you don't have one, we have, have a few extras. Does anyone need the uh, commissioning service order? Bob right here has a couple. We also had copies of the prayer guide. They were in the bulletin this morning. If there's anyone that did not get one this morning, we have those that you won't need them right now, but you can have them to have one to take home with you a little bit later. Allow me to begin with our call to worship. I, the Lord of sea and sky, I have heard my people cry. All who dwell in deepest sin, my hand will save. I who made the stars of light, I will make their darkness bright. Who will bear my light to them? Whom shall I send? I will break their hearts of stone, give them hearts for love alone. I will speak my word to them. Whom shall I send? Here am I, Lord. Is it I, Lord? I have heard you calling in the night. I 
will go, Lord. If you lead me, I will hold your people in my heart. Let's pray. Our Father, tonight we come because we have come to recognize something of the high calling you place on each of our lives. You call us into your holy presence. You call us to worship you with our praise, our gifts, our lives. You call us to take your salvation into all the world. You call us to make disciples of all nations. You call us to find our place, our mission, as your great kingdom marches forward. May each one of us this evening listen for your voice, your leading, your calling on our lives to be willing to respond by giving you all that we are today and every day. And we make our prayer in the name of the one who taught us to pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. I'm going to be presenting a call to mission for our church. It's only a minute or two, and at the end of that, I will ask you to respond with that congregation response that you see on your order of service. As we take part tonight in this celebration of blessing and commissioning, we are reliving a practice of the early church. Following our Lord's great commission, the first century church began to send its members to other people and other cultures to extend salvation and to assist others who had been brought into the Christian faith. God's word in Acts tells us of Paul and Barnabas being set apart by the early church and sent out for Christian mission. Without question, both local and international missions were on the hearts of those early believers and followers of Jesus. Tonight, First Baptist Church commissions those of us who have responded to God's calling on our lives to go and serve in his name. Stan, Betty, Leah, and I are going in obedience to Christ's command to teach all nations and make disciples in every culture. It is a privilege for this church to support our Kenya mission team to send us and to promise to pray daily for us. Congregation, will you respond? May your kingdom My scripture passage tonight is Matthew chapter 9, four verses, 35, 36, 37, and 38. I'm going to read those verses, and then I'm going to pause in between each one with some comments, and I'll be asking you a question to think about. 
Matthew 9, 35. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and sickness. Sickness, poverty, hunger, spiritual blindness. Our Kenya mission team goes to a country with a beautiful landscape and yet a culture engulfed in spiritual blindness. There's also spiritual blindness around us as well. Where is your mission? Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus went because he had compassion. There are around one and a half billion people in our world today, people on every continent, including our own, who have never heard the gospel of Jesus. They are the Father's sheep, but they are without a shepherd. Do you share Christ's compassion for all of our Father's creation? Verse 37, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Our Kenya mission team goes to strengthen and encourage the work of Christian believers struggling to live out their faith surrounded by unbelief. Those at home are also surrounded by unbelief. And yet Jesus says to you, go. Is he calling you? Verse 38. Ask the Lord of harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. It's not enough to just ask God to send others. We must be willing to answer his calling, to be laborers in his harvest. And his harvest is being gathered even now in Brevard County, in Florida, in the United States, in Kenya, and in all the nations of the world. Will you answer his call? Where is your mission? I've asked the members of our team to, to come tonight to be prepared to, to share just a word with you. And I have no idea what that's going to be. I suggested a testimony or a prayer request or anything that God might put on their hearts. So I'm going to ask them to come. Betty, if you would, uh, you begin. Leah, would you follow her? And then Brother Stan. Dennis has done a wonderful job, <laughs> and we're thrilled that he's going. He's such a help, and we're so blessed with Leah. We have never had anybody go with us to work with children, and this is going to be a, an extreme blessing. Now, you're working through interpreters, so we all need to really pray. We don't know their language, and they don't know ours. So that's one thing y'all can pray for us about, is good interpreters. Uh, some places we go, they understand English, but 
lot of places they don't speak one word of English. But God is gracious. Uh, I walked with him all next month. I'll be 94. And God has been good. And I've taken everyone to be a nurse, but I've taken care of a lot of people in the, in the family. And God gave me Stan. And I've had him over 15 years now. And that's another miracle that how uh, this happened. And then he was called into the family, Stan. We've just been everywhere. He's been to Liberia, started schools in Nigeria, going great. The start. Uh, about two months, I think it was, we managed to get buy back food. Uh, so when COVID hit, it kind of traveling. Third time is and just pray for their needs spiritually. Blessing. Of course, I love Alicia too. <laughs> I'm, I'm under tall, as my dad says. I'm not short, I'm under tall. Um, and I am my father's daughter, so I can talk. So somebody can tell me the signal to wrap it up if needed. Um, so I just wanted to talk about, I think one of the earliest memories I have of a Bible verse, when we all learn as we're little, Jesus loves me, we learn um, for God to love the world, we learn these things, but I don't remember the first time, I just always remember hearing the Great Commission. And as a toddler in Kentucky, our family was preparing for potentially going into the mission field overseas. And I don't know if that was where I, I was three. <laughs> so I don't know if that's where I picked it up. But in the back of my mind, that was just such a powerful verse to, to go. Go to all the nations, make disciples of men, and I will be with you um, to the end of the age. And I say that because there's many times in our life where we feel like God is sending us a message or we feel like he is guiding us in a specific way. But there's three specific times that I have audibly heard the voice of the Lord. One, when I was about 13 years old, give or take, uh, we had where our youth choir in Virginia was putting on a concert for world hunger. And we had all of the you know, people in the church, mostly our parents, come in and we served them at tables. They got to pick from one of the area restaurants and order a meal that of course we did not provide, but we provided them with the bill at the end of the night <laughs> for them to make their donation to World Hunger and we did a concert. And then the next day in service, our choir was up again singing. And I remember at the end at the um, benediction, our pastor was up front and I just heard the word, go forward, go forward. And I'm like, <laughs> looking around, you know. <laughs> And I remember saying to um, our pastor, Dr. Spangler, at the time, I just feel all tingly inside, and I don't know what it means. 
but I was supposed to go forward. And from that moment, I had many opportunities throughout middle and high school to do local missions. Uh, we did backyard Bible clubs there in Lynchburg during the summer at some of the um, lower income housing areas. I was able to go. Our association would gather the youth from all of the Baptist churches in town. We went to Philadelphia and did um, a Bible camp in downtown Philadelphia, um, inner city. I did a campground in North Carolina. Um, and then in high school, I was able to tour with a singing group for 30 days of students um, across from across the country. And we toured the Southeast for 30 days. Um, unbeknownst to me, one of those uh, services in Daytona Beach, my future husband watched that concert. But that's another story for another time. We didn't find that out for about five years later. Um, the second time I heard the voice of our Lord was on Christmas Day in 1998. And I was in Virginia in college and struggling. I had lost someone very dear to me. I was trying to deal with that grief. I was trying to keep up with college. I was trying to work two jobs so I could pay for my apartment. <laughs> um, and I came home to mom and dad's for Christmas in South Carolina, and they were preparing to move the next week to Florida. I'm an early riser. Again, my dad's daughter for sure. Uh, nobody's awake, so I got up and drove over to Folly Beach just on my own. And as I was sitting on the dunes, I heard God's voice go to Florida. And well, that's crazy. I've got rent. I can't get out of my lease. <laughs> I've got, you know, I've got another semester of school to go. I've, there's so much going on. I can't do that. But I came home and I talked to mom and dad and they're like, well, yeah, you can come home. <laughs> Within six months, I had met and married my husband of now almost 25 years. It was not on the radar at all. And the third time that I've heard that voice of the Lord was about six weeks ago. You stole my thunder. <laughs> so dad loves to come help me in the yard. And I let him ride the mower. And I do the other stuff. And um, he got there that morning, and we were talking for a while before we were getting started. And he was telling me how he had just had lunch with Mr. San and, and that this was happening. And clear as the bell, go to Kenya. And my husband knows me well enough that once I get something in my mind, I'm going to do it. <laughs> and not to argue, we just figure out a way to make it happen. So we did, and I am blessed, and I thank you for your all support, for your prayer. Um, my, my kids, my, my girls aren't here tonight. They're um, under the weather, but um, just, you know, our family allowing us to go. I teach school. My principal allowed me to take an extra week off from the Christmas break, first week back to school after a break, middle school. Uh, that's a big thing, but, you know, just that two-letter word, go, and, and that's, that's what we hear in Matthew 26. Depending on the, the version that you have of the Bible, it's either the first or, if not, the second word. Go, therefore, and make disciples in all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I will go with you to the ends of the earth. So I know that our Father will be with us, but we still covet your prayers for things to go smoothly. 
luggage to get where it needs to go, translators to understand this Virginia twangy Florida voice that comes out sometimes from this girl that talks way too fast. Um, and for our families that are going to be waiting to hear news from us at home and, and that have agreed to let us go. So thank you very much. And you didn't give me the wrap it up, so I'm good. <laughs> early church there was a greeting when God's people met each other they would say Christ the Lord is risen and the other person would respond he is risen indeed so let me greet you tonight Christ the Lord is risen he is risen indeed isn't that beautiful and that's why we go we serve a risen savior my own interest in missions took place when I was a child uh, like Leah I grew up in Dallas, Texas at a Baptist church, Galilee Baptist. It was founded by a famous evangelist, Dr. John R. Rice, who established a Christian newspaper called The Sword of the Lord. But before he became an evangelist and an editor, he was the pastor of churches, and he founded Galilean. And in the auditorium, there was an office to the right, and then there was a platform in the pulpit, but I would sit sometimes up close. Oh, I got, I moved to the back, but when I'm young, I sat up close. But there's this poster there. And it said, why should anyone hear the gospel twice until everyone has heard it once? And week after week, I would read that poster. And of course, it was an appeal for missions. And so my interest in missions began very early. And then the Lord, uh, has been pleased to call me to the ministry. I was 14 years of age when I preached my first sermon, or tried to, at a gospel rescue mission in Dallas, Texas. I only lasted about 10 minutes, but that was fine with the people who came because they got to eat. So the shorter the sermon, the quicker they got to eat. So I was well received. <laughs> at the age of 15, I was licensed by the oldest Southern Baptist Church in New Orleans to preach. They did things back then that they don't do today, but they used to call them boy preachers. And the church saw something there. And uh, so we thank the Lord for that memory. Uh, went into the service, served as a chaplain's assistant, and started pastoring uh, th at the age of 20 when I came out and then started going to school. So I've done things backwards. But uh, the Lord's been faithful. And I love the church. I love God's people. I'm one of those young people. I don't know the day or the hour of my conversion. I don't know when I came into the room, but I know I'm in it. <laughs> and I know I love Jesus, and I know he's my Savior. And so we thank the Lord for many years of ministry. The church has been my life. I've pastored uh, since the age of 20 and uh, for 32 years at least. And then we also had a Christian school associated with the ministry. So my heart's in education. My heart is in pastoral ministry and preaching the gospel. In 1998, <clears throat> I received a phone call from a friend of mine in Ohio, Tom Wells. And he said, Stan, I can't go to Jamaica, but would you like to go? 
Well, up to that time, I'd been praying, Lord, where are these fields that are white in the harvest? I mean, Lord, everybody we know is gospel-saturated, and uh, the rest of the world doesn't want to hear it anymore. And the Lord had to tell me, if you'll lift up your eyes high enough and far enough, you'll see them. And so I received this phone call from Tom Wells. He said, I can't go to Jamaica. Would you like to go? And I said, here's an answer to prayer. God opens up a door of opportunity. I'm going to walk through it. And I said, of course I'd like to go. And then as we were talking, I thought came to my mind. I said, Tom, I'm new at this. Um, do I need any special shots? And he said, uh, well, you might want to take a shot of whiskey. <laughs> I was not expecting that. <laughs> but he's not far wrong because going to some of these countries can be challenging. Uh, usually when I go, I try to stick to a diet of rice and pineapple and chicken. And some of the meals they offer you are very, very challenging. I was in Ghana, Africa one time. They opened up a pot and there's this fish head swimming around. And I said, uh, brother, would you like this? And they wanted me to eat. I said, I want you to have it. Trust me, I really do. <laughs> but I do have a couple of conditions before I try to eat something. One, if it doesn't crawl off the plate, I'll try it. <laughs> and the other, if it doesn't look at me and wink, I'll try it. But when we were in Nepal, remember the food they tried to serve us up in the mountains? It was the fieriest thing. You cannot describe hot with this food. And even some of the natives couldn't <laughs> eat it. It was so spicy. But anyway, those are some of the challenges. But they're fine. And uh, we enjoy that. And then God has given opportunities, as Betty mentioned, to go to a lot of different countries over the years. Uh, I became challenged with health issues about 15 years ago. I've had open heart surgery, replacement, uh, reconstructed surgery, triple bypass. The VA is taking good care of me. We have excellent VA. Just put a plug in for the VA here. <laughs> and they, uh, yeah. And the latest is a hip replacement about eight years ago, but it's never healed properly. And so I have to use the cane for balance. And if I walk more than 30 yards, then the hip locks up and I've got I've hobbled my way across the world <laughs> for the last 15 years, literally. And uh, so I can walk about 30 yards and pause, and the pain will go away, and I keep going. So uh, we thank the Lord for the mobility to just keep going. And then Brother Dennis, as you know, has health issues. I'm not sure about Leah, but uh, and she has health concerns. But I know Betty's one of the healthiest of us four, <laughs> and she's going to be 94 here. And uh, so we, we pray for health. We pray that God will give us the strength to do what we believe he's called us to do. Well, what do we want to accomplish in Kenya in particular? Well, we have several objectives. First of all, we do want to present the gospel. We'll be speaking 27 times in nine days is the schedule. They had us down for more, and I told them, we have to slow this down. I told them I wanted to be useful but not killed in the process. <laughs> and I do want to come home. And so, but um, the way we're scheduled now, they had us speaking three times a day, and now we've reduced it to two times a day plus a workshop in the afternoon. But that's still a pretty demanding schedule over a nine-day period. And so 
we want to preach the gospel. We ask the countries we go to, usually there's a theme that they like to address, our special need, but not this time. And I even sent them 30 suggested topics, and Brother Augustine came back and said, whatever you want, whatever God leads. And that's a challenge sometimes. Lord, what do the people need? But we'll be speaking in four different churches, Lord willing, to an aggregate of about 700 people over a nine-day period. And one of the things um, they requested was that we help them feed those who come. Now, it's a very poor country, and we started a ministry uh, back in 1998, RGM, Redeeming Grace Ministry, just for times like this. We don't have any churches supporting us officially, and it's a faith-based operation. And we send out books and literature around the world free of charge, and then we look for special needs and try to help them. And again, we don't have any organization. We don't send out fundraisers. We don't make appeals for money. We don't take up offerings. But God has uh, been gracious in supplying the needs as we pray. Perhaps you've heard the ministry of George Mueller and the orphanages. And uh, so we kind of like that model. We ask for nothing. We appreciate everything. And God's people <coughs> hear about something we're doing, and then they uh, sometimes the Lord says, here's some resources. So with the resources entrusted us, we don't take any uh, personal expenses or anything like that. We reinvest it in the ministry. And so <clears throat> we're committed to giving these four churches uh, 220 Bibles, and they cost about $9 each. So God has supplied that resources for that, so that's going to be taken care of. And then they needed food. And so we sent them $1,500 to um, buy the food. And then we have literature that we, by God's grace, there's a pallet that the church I go to works for Delta and is able to get his pallet discount and ship the material. So that saves a lot of luggage, just 50 pounds each. So we've shipped six uh, large boxes of literature already and they've been received but I'll tell you there's graft in these countries and on the receiving end they charge these dear people $465 just to pick up these six boxes of literature and so there went some of the resources right there but they had sent enough to uh, cover those needs so the food's taken care of the Bibles are taken care of uh, the literature is there and what we try to do as we present the gospel, and then we try to address any needs that they might have and uh, answer any questions and help the pastors with any concerns uh, or issues they're facing. And uh, people have problems wherever you go. So we want to help uh, minister to them and give whatever knowledge or experience we uh, from God's word that we have. And then another thing we want to accomplish outside of preaching the gospel and feeding those who come to the meetings <clears throat> is to help them start a Bible institute. Uh, we've started some Bible institutes in uh, Nigeria, and uh, some of them are going very well after 20 years of ministry. We're working in Nepal. I've done a lot of writing, uh, Brother uh, Dennis has done writing, so we like to get uh, literature out to God's people, again, free of charge. 
And so we're going to help them with these literature boxes. They'll have personal devotional material, but they'll also have packages where they can have a Bible Institute without a lot of money and budgets and overhead. So we show them how to do that and how to plug them into ministries that will give them resources uh, without cost. And so <clears throat> when we leave, we also uh, always leave with good memories. We have lots of stories to tell, and uh, not just about the food, but about the culture and different experiences that come up. But it's a blessing when Pastor Dennis and I were in Nepal. We, the dear people would come down out of the mountains because I asked the pastor, Samuel Wright, Dr. Samuel Wright, when I went, I said, look, if I come this far, I, I want to be useful. And so he took me at his word there and, and Nepal as well. So <clears throat> I went early. The conference was coming up, and I went a week early. And uh, so he took us in his vehicle, and he started going into the mountains. And, and then the people would come to these little churches, and they would sit and they very, uh, are they, it's a concrete slab, very humble facility with about a one inch mat. And there they sit. And uh, remember brother how we were at one of these small churches and about 75 people out of nowhere has come down from the mountains. And they were sitting there listening to this minister. I said, do you think that we could get 75 Baptists back in America to sit on a concrete floor for <laughs> two and a half hours and listen to us preach? I don't think so <laughs> but that's the kind of uh, uh, simplicity and uh, it just breaks your heart so we have been able to help uh, brother Augustine the lead minister over in, in Ghana uh, finish a church building very humble but uh, it's now completed and he's a very gifted man I don't know him personally. I'm kind of going to see what work we've invested in because we've uh, helped him finish the building. We bought him some Bibles. And then a couple of times when they were hungry and having a famine this past year, we sent enough resources to feed whoever's in their congregation. And so that's what we're going to do again. So we ask for nothing. We try to give everything freely. We receive freely. We give. But we do have these objectives to... Uh, feed the hungry, and um, then we have a little gift for the ladies, and I want to thank you. I understand that you have contributed in that area. I saw in some of the photos that were coming back how humble and simple the people were dressing, but I noticed that one or two had a costume jewelry on, but others didn't, and I thought, wouldn't it be nice if we had a little gift of grace for the ladies of grace? And so that was the idea. God put them on heart. I passed the word on. And so we have had a tremendous response on that. And the question is, well, how many little packages do we need? And so I asked the pastors over there about the average congregation. And uh, we've come up with a number of about 300 of, uh, packages that we put together. So we're hoping that... Um, we don't have more than 300 ladies, <laughs> or we're going to be in trouble. <laughs> but no, I think it'll, it'll go well. But we thank you for your contribution. That I cannot begin to tell you how grateful and how much of a blessing you are uh, to these people and how grateful they are 
And that's what keeps us going out, just a sheer gratitude. And then also, God is working a work of grace. Brother Augustine, almost on a weekly basis, tells us about we've had somebody be converted and they joined the church and God is at it. And I told the Bible class this morning, I teach, I said, look, I want to go over there and get in on the harvest. And uh, God's moving. And so we know God has a people. And if we'll go into all the nations, uh, he'll bless the preaching of the gospel. And uh, we'll come home rejoicing and bring it in the seed. So we do pray that you will, uh, we do ask that you pray for good translators. I was in Russia some years ago, and I was communicating, I thought, with the pastor. I thought, well, you know, he's bilingual, a lot of these countries are. And uh, I get finally to Siberia in the innermost uh, little town where I was going, and uh, he doesn't show up. So I'm looking at my watch, and all these Russians around, and I don't speak Russian, they don't speak English. But eventually, he showed up about an hour later, and he didn't speak a word of English. And I don't speak a word of German, <laughs> I mean Russian. And so uh, finally, you know, sign language and so on, we got back to his little apartment that they have in Russia, and his daughter was learning English, though she had broken English. And then finally we got to the translator and things went better after that. But I cannot tell you how important a good translator is. And most of the time when I go and speak at these uh, different countries, they do have pretty good translators. But sometimes I don't know how they're going to come up with as many as we're going to need. Now, Sister Leah, she's going to take care of the children. And we thank her that God's put it on her heart. And then Betty's going to teach the ladies, and Pastor Dennis and I will deal with the people. And let me tell you what a special man you have here. Of course, you know that, but I just want to reaffirm it. When um, he had invited us to go out to lunch, and he didn't know anything about going to Kenya. And so I said, here's my opportunity. So we ordered the food, and it's coming. And I just mentioned <clears throat> that have an opportunity, to, I've accepted a an invitation to go to Kenya, would you like to go? And I tell you without a second's hesitation, he said, yes. And I said, yes. You see, I need this man <laughs> for reasons. First of all, he is very gifted with organization. He has done a lion's share of the work of putting this. There's a lot of groundwork involved in one of these uh, mission trips, even short term. And he's done most of the uh, groundwork, and I appreciate it. But beyond that, way beyond that, beyond his organizational skills, is his giftedness. He is one of the uh, best pulpiteers I know. He is a gifted communicator of God's word. And uh, I just value him. I, I've known him for many years now, loving, and uh, Lisa would love her. I've uh, never heard her preach, but uh, she, she, <laughs> but she, she's, she's a gifted musician. You know that, too. So anyway, just thank you for letting us uh, uh, be part of the ministry here and, uh, and barring Pastor Dennis for a few days. Anybody have any questions they might want to ask? Maybe we can answer some later on if you do. Yes, please. Do you want to be a 
When Hudson Taylor was director of the China Inland Mission, he was interviewing missionary candidates. Why do you wish to serve, he asked a group of group candidates. And there were various answers, because the needs are great, because the people are perishing, because I want to serve, because I feel called. There were many other replies given explaining why various members of the group wanted to go as missionaries. And finally, Hudson Taylor said, all of these motives, however good, will fail you in times of testing. There is but one motive that will sustain you, the love of Christ. Isaiah 6, 8, Isaiah said, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go? And I said, here am I, send me. A man by the name of Fritz Chrysler was a world-famous violinist. He earned a fortune with his concerts and compositions, but he generously gave most of it away. So when he discovered an exquisite violin on one of his trips, he wasn't able to buy it. Later, after raising enough money to meet the asking price, he returned to the seller hoping to purchase that beautiful instrument. But to his dismay, it had been sold to a collector. Chrysler made his way to the new owner's home, and he offered to buy the violin. But the collector said it had become one of his most prized possessions, and it was not for sale. Chrysler asked the man if he played, and the man said, no, I just like it. And then the man asked Chrysler, would you like to play it? Chrysler took the instrument and filled the room with heart-moving music. And the collector's emotions were stirred. He said, I have no right to keep that to myself. It's yours. Take it to the world and let the people hear it. When Isaiah saw and heard <clears throat> the glory and the holiness of God, he knew he had to take God's truth to the world so that all could hear it. And that's why God needs every one of us to respond to his mission call. We go because God calls us to carry his message of love. We don't go because human beings will be better people when they receive Christ, although they will. We don't go because marriages and families are going to be stronger when Christ is the head of the home, although it will. We don't go because nations of the world will be able to live in liberty and peace when founded on the truth of the gospel, even though they will. We don't go just to make the world a better place or because of the old song that says what the world needs now is love, sweet love. We go because of God's compelling love. Some modern translations of 2 Corinthians 5.14 say, Christ's love controls me. The NIV says, Christ's love compels me. The old J.B. Phillips translation says, the very spring of our actions is the love of Christ. 
John 14, 31 is a very unusual verse of Scripture. The setting is that upper room just before Jesus went to the cross. It's unusual because it is the only expression we have of the love of Jesus for his Father. Jesus said, the world must learn that I love the Father. John, as well as the other Gospels, tell us in many places how Jesus was always concerned about completing the will of the Father and being about the Father's business. And so what this tells me is that for Jesus, love and obedience were inseparable. Going back to that verse, John 14, 31, we see the rest of the expression for the love Jesus had for the Father. He said, the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father commands me. Love is carried out in service. Obedience is seen through love. And so we have loving service, obedient love. They're one and the same. John is very clear in his gospel as well as in his letter at the end of the New Testament about how our love for God is shown in our obedience to him. He expresses it in several places. And I believe that is because John took it to heart when he heard Jesus say, and then later recorded it for us in the 14th chapter of John. Jesus said, if you love me, you will do what I say. Loving service, obedient love, they're the same thing. One of my favorite Fanny Crosby hymn text says, Master, thou callest, I gladly obey. Only direct me and I'll find thy way. Teach me the mission appointed for me. What is my labor and where it shall be? Master, thou callest. And this I reply, ready and willing, Lord, here am I. I still like that old J.B. Phillips translation. The very spring of our actions is the love of Christ. And so, it is our obedient response to his love that compels us, Mission to Kenya team, and every one of us, wherever we are, whatever age, wherever we find ourselves in life, to go on our mission trips in our neighborhoods, to go on our mission trips to both friends and strangers as we travel across Brevard County, our state, and our nation, and mission trips around the world. I've asked my brother Kurt to come and give a charge to our mission team. always referred to as the dark continent. And I know that uh, that was political, 
socially, every other way. But then later, <clears throat> as I come to know more of the Bible and my relationship with the Lord, I realized that they were dark, consummate spiritually. And when you think about the darkness of the world, we can't exclude our own country. We're in a, a dark age even here in America. Many of the laws and all that we have here in, the, in our country is built on biblical Ten Commandments. You don't steal, you don't kill, you don't covet, just honor. And yet, have become a dark constant. You're going to be going to an area that is dark. And I'm reminded, as Brother Dennis was preaching this morning after Isaiah, when he was talking about the prophecy of the virgin giving birth at Christmas. And I was, as he was talking about that, I, I thought also of, of another prophecy that was there <clears throat> in Isaiah in the ninth chapter, verse 2 and 3, or, or 1 and 2. And it said that from the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, by the sea, that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. And then you go over to Matthew chapter 4, as Jesus is beginning to start his ministry, he hears that John the Baptist has been put in prison. And as he's going, he leaves Nazareth and he goes down to Capernaum. As was prophesied by Isaiah, because Capernaum was in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. And so as it was told, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. My scripture I chose for tonight is John, because I want you to think about the light, because y'all are going to become light. Light people in the spiritual darkness. John said, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him that was made. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. I'm going to pull my Bible a little bit closer. My eyes just got older. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Think about that a moment. Then it goes on to say, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. And this is where y'all come in. The man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. And he came to his own and he did not, they did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe his name. So you're not going to be the light, but you're going to bear witness to the light so that all those who believe become the children of God. Theologian N.T. Wright once said, 
Christmas is God's lighting a candle. You don't light a candle in a room already full of sunlight. You light a candle in a room that's so murky that, that the candle, when lit, reveals just how bad things really are. The light shines in the darkness, said John, and the darkness has not overcome it. And for that reason, according to Wright, Christmas isn't a dream or a mom momentary escape, but it's reality. And the same is true for Christianity. Brother Dennis said it pretty good a while ago. Either Jesus is the light, or the world is hopelessly lost forever in darkness with no Either Jesus is who he says he is, or if not, there's no middle ground. He is the light. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And then in Matthew 5, 14, it says, You are the light of the world. Jesus is talking about us. We're the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men. You know, I'm thinking about a lighthouse. I used to love to go to beaches. And that's one of the places I love to visit, the lighthouse. And I love to walk up them stairs. You get up to the top all out of breath and sit there. And when you get up there, when you look at a lighthouse, you've got a, a, a big bulb that is put right there in the middle, and that bulb is, I think it's a 500-watt bulb, and you think, how in the world can the ships miles at sea see that light? It's not just the bulb, but all that glass around it is a prism, and it takes that light and it enhances it and intensifies it and sends it even brighter and further and, and sharpens that light beam. And so the bright light is there, but it's the prism that makes it shine. So y'all gonna fix, y'all gonna have the opportunity to become the prism when you get the candle. Let the light of Jesus Christ shine so through you that it becomes a light to all those that's in spiritual darkness that you're going to encounter. Because they will be there. And you're going to have the opportunity to be the light. John 12 says, Now is the judgment on this world. And I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. So you're going to get an opportunity to lift them up. Let him do the drawing. You do what you are to have committed to do to go. Hear my Lord, send me. Let me, Lord, be the light that will let your light so shine through me. And John goes on in chapter 20, verse 21, and Jesus said to him, Peace to you. As my Father hath sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and received to receive the Holy Spirit. We can't breathe on you today. But we're going to ask that the four of you come to Jesus.
becomes the light within yourself that will so shine the light from within that is Jesus Christ that you'll brighten up the world. So if y'all would come. Let the four of them come. Fetch these four chairs. 